Hi everyone, Lockie Matsell here. Welcome to the first episode of Checkered Flag Chat for 2021. Our guest in this episode is Tony Bates. Batesy is the epitome of the gentleman racer, a highly successful entrepreneur whose preferred recreational pursuit is driving fast race cars. Batesy is also our longest standing client here at Checkered Flag Media. When I started the business in 2007, he was the first driver to come on board. Tony currently races an Audi R8 in GT competition, but as you'll hear in the podcast, his motorsport beginnings were far more humble. So, let's dive into it. Tony Bates' racing journey here on Checkered Flag Chat. Great to have Tony Bates on the Checkered Flag Chat podcast. And Batesy, we're going to go right the way back to the beginning to July 2002 when you made your circuit racing debut at Winton in a VH Commodore Cup car. What actually made you decide to get into racing to start off with? 2002, geez, that sounds a long time ago. No, look, I was, uh, I was at, a, at a function with one of my staff, um, staff's husbands, and um, we just got chatting, and he, I was telling him how I um, like to drive fast um, around town, lost my licence a few times, which is generally good qualification uh, to get into car, car racing and motorsport. And um, yeah, he said, let's, uh, let, let's get yourself a car and, and head out there. And I said, I had no idea how to even get into the sport. Um, so uh, I bought a, uh, it was sort of like a, a Bagus Marsh Speedway sort of dirt, you know, um, I, I can't remember what you call them. Not, I think they were called Oz cars or something back then. Um, and went to the first meeting at Bagus Marsh and, uh, I thought this isn't quite the demographic that I was um, thinking I was going to be wanting to race in front of and around and um, just thought it wasn't for me. So so this guy actually came up with the idea. He said, what about, um, you know, Commodore Cup? Never heard of it. I, I really hadn't followed motorsport. Um, I just want to go fast. I thought I'd be pretty good because I, um, I could drive fast around the streets of Melbourne. So uh, we went to Phillip Island and introduced me to a guy called Dave Giddis. Um, and we got chatting and um, next thing you know, I bought a, a uh, VH Holden, um, someone in Sydney, um, sticking it up. And, um, and then when I got my license at Calder Park and um, the guys sort of said, you're not heel and towing, it sounds like then uh, in the first turn. I said, what the fuck's that? <laughs> well, what's heel and tow mean? Got no idea. And, um, and he tried to explain it to me. It's that it was all, all foreign language to me. Got my license and uh, went to Winton for the first time and uh, smashed into everything by the, uh, by the ambulance. I had a crack at that as well. Um, the second race was in the wet and because um, I wasn't heel and towing, I just braked and uh, spun off the track. Uh, so I learned the hard way, uh, Lachlan, as to uh, my first introduction at the motorsport that, uh, that round at Winton. I actually went back and I looked up your results from that weekend. So you qualified 14th in Out race... 14? No, there were actually a few more cars, so you didn't qualify last. Shame on, shame on them, that's all I could say. I think <laughs> I know who, what your names were as well. I won't repeat it on this. Uh, one was a female. 
and uh, one would have been a male, I think. Uh, so race one, you got a DNF. So that must have been the, the one where you crashed yeah, into everything except the yeah, ambulance. Yep. <laughs> uh, and then race two in the wet, you managed to get up to 11th, which wasn't actually a bad effort. I think that's because I spun off and ended up at the other side of the track and beat about three cars to, the, to that turn. <laughs> so um, that's probably why that would have been. <laughs> what do you remember about the very early days of Commonwealth Cup? Obviously, it was a baptism of fire in that first race meeting, but did you find that it was fairly easy to come to grips with the car and learn how to drive it? <laughs> no. <laughs> I had no idea. I'd never been in a race car before. I remember I was absolutely shitting myself um, on dummy grid for the first race, I was like, you know, practicing quality. Guys were going past me like I was. I was just absolutely. I thought I was fearless, but um, I was an absolute pussy cat. Let me tell you, um, pretty nerve wracking because you don't want to get in people's way. You're still learning. You know, still cutting your teeth. Um, still trying to understand what heel and toe means. Um, and it was just, you know, guys would come up to me, introduce themselves, and say, you know, what's your experience? I said. Uh, I, I was I drive really fast on the Tullamarine freeway, freeway while I'm running late for a flight. That was about my experience <laughs> or driving away from cops at 2am in the morning. So that was about my own experience. I've never done go-karting before or, oh, you know, I do go-karting at the showgrounds. Oh, that, that's dodging cars, mate. mate. <laughs> yeah, no. No idea, Lachlan. Absolute muppet. Um, so it was, it was harrowing. It was harrowing. But... Um, one thing about Commodore Cup was that uh, a lot of guys helped each other out, um, and there were, um, you know, there were some some guys out there that really made an effort to to come and uh, say good day and introduce themselves, and uh, and some would sit back and have a, have an absolute laugh as to um, what was going on. There was there was it was back in the day where, you know, motorsport probably wasn't taken as seriously now, um, though some did take it very seriously. Um, it was a great it was a great category. Uh, great category to cut your teeth in and 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 learn motorsport in. Because apart from the driving side of things, of course, the other thing that you would have had to learn was the preparation of the car and, and how to properly work on and you know conduct basic maintenance on the car, let alone trying to get it set up. So, how was the camaraderie in Commonwealth Cup with other people helping you out with the preparation and maintenance of the car? I'm not going to mention any names here. Um, Put it this way, um, whilst, we, whilst I said earlier, you know, there was, uh, everyone helped each other out and it was, it was, it was, a, it was an absolutely great category. It was, it was <laughs> yeah, people did think they were running for sheep stations. Um, trophies in Commodore Cup were like, um, you know, um, back in the war when uh, countries were fighting for land, it was, it was on. There was, um, you know, the Kanavik and uh, Emery era where uh, they were at each other to, to try and win a championship and, um, you know, uh, there was there was lots of you know accident racing and lots of um, rivalries out there. And then Jeff and I teamed up to form Tag Motorsport, and uh, I guess you know it went from more there's a kind of a Emery sort of competitiveness to probably Tag Motorsport and accent. Um, so it was you know it was it was, it was good days. There were there were there were a few two car teams. You know, Strathfield Car Sound and Dave Gittis had two cars. You know, accent racing had two cars. Tag Motorsport had two cars. Um, you know, then uh, West Coast Windows, uh, uh, old mate Ross McGregor uh, ran two cars. So it was, it was, it was, you know, only Commodore Cup, but we didn't race at the V8 rounds. But it was, a, it was 
bloody good racing. It was competitive. And, you know, if you go back to some flashback now, you know, um, front front bars and rear bars were, were like welded and bolted on because, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't unusual to turn around, to get around a turn and there was someone's rear bar hanging off their car because you let someone know you were, uh, you were racing in Commodore Cup, let me tell you. I want to talk more about the relationship with Jeff Emery because for me, looking at your results, that was clearly a turning point for you in that probably the first three or four seasons, you'd been a mid-pack runner. But once you formed the relationship with Jeff Emery and started working together with him and you formed the Tag Motorsport operation, that was where your personal results really took a big step forward. How did the relationship actually come about with Jeff to start off with? I think Jeff and his team felt sorry for us, to be honest. <laughs> um, looking at uh, the money I was throwing at it to, to get fast and, um, and and the commitment I was throwing at it to, to learn the craft. And, you know, um, yeah, the, the guy that was running my team, um, you know, was uh, was an interesting character. He was a good guy, but, um, you know, there was some of the guys, <clears throat> you know, like Jeff, had, had, had dinos and, um, you know, great setups in their backyard and, you know, they, they took it seriously. It was, a, it was almost a full-time gig to them. And, you know, um, I think one of Jeff's guys and one of my guys got, got talking and um, Jeff said, bring your car over and I'll have a look at it. And, um, you know, sort of it, it, the car stayed there and um, we formed a, a pretty good relationship to, to, you know, we're still best mates now. But I brought the personality, personality and looks and Jeff brought the, uh, the, the smarts and we ended up being a good team. So uh, Tag was Tony and Jeff motorsport um and you know we we had a lot of success um both in commonwealth cup and um and other categories uh, post that at that stage jeff was the the form driver in commonwealth cup he was winning championships seemingly for fun at that stage um how much did you learn from him with regards to being able to analyze his data and how much did that help you improve your driving yeah well we weren't doing any data um we were just going out there and trying to have a crack uh, without any purpose. Um, and I think teaming up with Jeff here, I started to, took me years. Um, it took lots of battles for him to get the phone off me and concentrate on uh, on data um, and learn the hard way. It was just all squiggly glue to me. It was just, I might as well be looking at Chinese writing. Um, but yeah, I, obviously we, we got pretty serious. We started to get, uh, Jeff was engineering me and doing his own driving, his own engineering and, um, you know, mentoring me as well. So, you know, I'm forever grateful at, at the time he put into me. Um, and then we, we uh, started getting even more serious and got an engineer to, to start doing the data so Jeff could concentrate more on his driving and motorsport. Um, but, yeah, uh, it was a turning point for me. I don't know where I would have ended up in terms of motorsport without that um, relationship. Um, and we, uh, we formed TAG for quite a few years. And um, our motto was to, to be successful on the track but to have fun off the track. Um, we'd probably push that that water too much. We'd turn off, uh, we'd turn up at race meets, and uh, Jeff would just frown and uh, shake his head because there was only the single guys um, going out on a Friday and Saturday night before a race meet, and uh, Jeff took his motorsport very seriously <laughs> back then. So no, it was good. It was a good learning curve, and um, yeah, he was uh, he was great. We get to the end of two thousand and six. And uh, I remember at that stage, I'd just finished high school. I'd finished my last year 12 exam. 
I was sitting at home doing nothing as you do when you've just finished school and surfing the internet and I happened to come across the Commodore Cup website and uh, they were advertising because they wanted somebody to come on board as the media manager and series commentator for the following season. And uh, next thing, David Gittes has dragged me out to the track for the last round of the 2006 Commodore Cup season at Sydney Motorsport Park, which is where you and I first met. Being honest, Batesy, what were your first impressions when David Gittes introduced me to you and told you that I was going to be coming on board to look after all the media for Commodore Cup? How honest do you want me to be? Yeah, totally honest. Um, I thought, was he? Why, why would he have appointed a primary school kid <laughs> to take on um, the media and marketing of uh, Commodore Cup? You do look like you're at high school now, so you've progressed. I think the beard is a great decoy, so well done. Um, no, look, I, 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 I thought Dave was very brave in, in giving you a giving you a go at what he was wanting to achieve. You. Um, you obviously had very little experience, but um, I think your eagerness and keenness won everyone over from a very early start. So, um, you know, I've got lots of stories I could tell about you, Lachlan. Um, vivid memories that Steve Owen and I have about a leather jacket one night at Bathurst nightclub <laughs> and seeing you, um, you know, uh, exchanging vows uh, by your uh, mouth um, with a, a very interesting Bathurst. <laughs> woman um but we'll leave that one offline um but you've come a long way since then but yeah you were you were you were young very young and uh scrawny and um, your clothes were too big for you um but your eagerness was uh you know and, and the eagerness today um is great i think you've learned the craft of timing a lot better um, early days after a stack, you would come running and you could see Lachlan running, running, running at you. And it'd be, fuck off, Lachlan, not now. <laughs> and you'd do, a, you'd do a 180 quicker than you could even imagine and you'd head back and <laughs> wait for the right time. It took, I reckon it took about two years of fuck off, Lachie, not now, <laughs> um, for you to get your timing right as to when to approach a race car driver. And There's uh, a time and a place. There is, and when you're, getting out, when you're getting out of the ambulance, or when you've got out of your car and there's smoke bellowing everywhere, um, that's probably not the best time to go and approach. <laughs> I think you've learned that craft very well now. And if we think back to the 2007 season, and by that stage you were a consistent top five runner in in Commodore Cup, and there were some good drivers who you were always battling with. Jeff Emery, we've talked about. Uh, Danny Richard was running very strongly that season. Brett Holdsworth was in the category, Ashley Cooper, Jeff Fontaine. Uh, but there's one other driver uh, who I seem to remember you having some battles with, Nick Parker. And uh, it seems that in 2007, every second round, I was commentating on an incident between either you running into Nick Parker or, or Nick running into you. What was it that uh, seemed to give your two cars a magnetic attraction to each other? Yeah, magnetic is exactly the word I was about to use. No idea. I think, um, you know, sometimes you, 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 you're just always racing around that same person. And I think, obviously, our speed was about the same at that point. And, um, yeah, you want to talk about motorsport rivalries. That was one that, um, that was probably one of the better ones in, in Commodore Cup. No idea. Um, it... it 
I wouldn't say, uh, maybe I would, I was going to say I wouldn't say I ever did anything deliberately um, to crash into him, but it probably got to the point in the end that you just went out there and if there was going to be a tap, it was just, it was game on and it got to a point where we were just coming back with, with cars that were bundles of steel. Like it was just, it was ridiculous. If there was any, yeah, I just used to shake my head um, how we would just end up coming together. So big fans of Nick, he is still in motorsport and he's actually doing some pretty good things in Speedway at the moment. That's uh, probably exactly where he belongs because he used to drive that thing off its rear wheels. Um, it was a talented driver, I'll give him that. He was, he was quick on his day, but we just ended up coming across each other all the time. Not sure what, what, what it was. It was nothing personal, but it did become personal in the end. Um, but yeah, um, I think, you know, the Michael Tancredi, there's, there's some really good, talented young kids in that in that sport, but they um, you knew they should end up in Speedway because they just used to drive those things off the, off the rear tyres. So they were Speedway-type drivers. Um, yeah, you mentioned some pretty pretty handy names there. Some of them are still around. Yeah, Michael Tancredi's in Speedway as well. Um, Adam Lloyd actually is another one as well who actually came from Speedway into Commodore mm. Cup and then went back to Speedway again. But what about um, that other uh, what about that other young up and comer, uh, Ross McGregor? He was he sort of had a lot of talent. Where did he end up? <laughs> uh, well, he's actually getting some quite good results in the Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge now, driving for Ash Seawood Motorsport, and and Jeff Emery still driving, coaching him. So yeah, another another one of Jeff's prodigies. Yeah, he's uh, one of the nice guys of the sport, Ross. And um, he still he's un- might make it to V8, Ross. He's he's on a progression path. He's definitely on a know. progression path. Uh, <laughs> he's a great guy. During the 2007 Commonwealth Cup season, there was some really, really good on-track racing, but not the track I remember. And it was very much a baptism of fire for me in my first year working full-time in motorsport. There were a lot of politics with the way that the category was being managed at that stage and uh, a lot of dissatisfaction among some of the competitors, including Jeff and yourself. Is that what prompted the two of you to buy V8 supercars to progress to what we now know as the Super 2 Series in 2008? Yeah, I, I forgot about those days. Yeah, that was, uh, that were interesting times. It was two sort of, um, two forums that were splitting apart as to who was going to run uh, Commodore Cup and, uh, you know, whether we, some wanted to go to the new model and to the VSs and some didn't. So, but yeah, they were interesting times. Um, look, Jeff, Jeff um, wanted to obviously progress. He probably had enough Commodore Cup and um, said, let's go and um, run V8 in the V8s, V8 supercars. And uh, I thought he was absolutely, had rocks in his head, like, no way. That's, that's, that's another step up again. Um, but I can never say no, and um, you know that we did, Jeff. When you know we went and bought some HS uh, HSB cars, uh, sorry HRT cars, um, and yeah, um, sort of another nervous moment um, of getting into uh, you know a much different, differently powered, uh, more professional, you know, really good drivers um, category. And I was. Um, having a chat with Chaz Mostert the other day. And, you know, I remember Chaz's first race at uh, Clipsal and I went into the timesheet um, and to look at, you know, I think Jason Richards had won one of the races then. It was a, his last um, steer in a car, I think, um, uh, when we were Greg Murphy racing. So this was post-tag. But if you have a look at the names that, that were in the Balloton Series back then, um, you know, 
quarter of them are in V8 stay, quarter of them have got the V8 and retired. There's some pretty handy names. So if we cast our mind back to 2008, the car that you bought for your rookie season in what was then known as the Fujitsu series, it wasn't just any car. It was Murph's lack of the gods car. At that stage, it was the fastest car ever around Mount Panorama. Was that something that you deliberately set out to buy when you were looking at supercars or was it just sort of the way that the cards fell that that was how, what you ended up with? Yeah, I think um, initially Jeff had, was in negotiation for um, Mark, one of Mark's, Mark's sold cars and, and we were struggling to find a good car. We obviously wanted a, a good car and um, yeah, they ended up saying, look, we, could, we didn't want to, but we'll, we'll sell you this car. And I thought, you know, it was a great buy because it would have some residual value in the end, which I think it's probably the only car in history that increased in value. Um, and, you know, got certainly got my money back when I sold it on the exit. But, yeah, it was um, it was a pretty pretty special car. So um, it was I was quite privileged to be to be racing that round of circuits, knowing its history. And um, you know, you, you watch the video clip of that of that um, top ten shootout lap. He did the 2069, um, and it was yeah, it was pretty, pretty, pretty exciting to had a car like that. Do you regret selling it? I do, but um, you know everything's for sale. Um, the guy that bought it spent a shitload of money on it, and it's in some museum somewhere now. So now, today, yes, back then, you know, I was still a battler trying to make a quid, and um, you know, didn't have the the fortune of you know keeping it, and then. Continuing to buy, you know, I think we went into Commodore. Uh, uh, no, we went back to Commodore Cup, didn't we? Then we're back in a V8 and Career Cup. But yeah, um, you know, don't look back in the past. It was, a, it was a great car, a lot of history, had a lot of fun in it. So your first development series race meeting was was actually round two in in 2008. You missed the first round, which was at the Clipsal 500 in 2008. And that race meeting, very unfortunately, will be remembered for the tragic death of one of our good friends in Ashley Cooper, who had a horrific crash at turn number eight. Uh, and then what you'll remember, Tony, is the Wakefield Park round. They had a tribute to Ashley um, on the grid. How emotional was that for you to be making your V8 supercar racing debut uh, at an event where you, you effectively were saying goodbye to one of your close friends and rivals? Yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting because my car was supposed to be ready for that first round, but uh, they were still it wasn't initially for sale, but I was still putting things together uh, to the car and it just didn't make the round. And um, so I still went to Clipsal that that, uh, that weekend to watch the boys, but uh, we, won't, we won't talk too much about that. It was a horrible, horrible weekend. Yeah, look, it was it was pretty special. If I recall, I think Ash's mum was um, waved the flag um, at, uh, at either the, the start-finish line um, and uh, yeah, it was a pretty emotional day for for everyone. It had only been a few weeks earlier. We'd, we'd had his funeral and everything. And again, it was another daunting moment for me, you know, having uh, you know the Steve Owens, Jack Perkins, Dale Woods flying around you at, at at Wakefield in your first event in a V8 supercar was just again pretty nerve wracking moment. But from what I can recall, there was a, a you know first lap, first race, first lap first turn in front of Ashley's mum who had sort of waved the flag for us. Uh, it was an almighty, probably one of the biggest stacks in motorsport ever seen. 
and I've got some photos somewhere where you've got coral springs and doors that have flown up in the air. I think out of the 31 cars, 15 were stacked into each other, left sidewards, backwards. It was, I remember turn one, you got the, you, well, you got that kink at Wakefield before turn one and uh, someone had gone in the dust and it was, you know, summer, it was dry and it was just like days of thunder. You just had to drive through that dust cloud. Uh, but unfortunately, it wasn't all clear at the other end. Um, it was it was like a car park. I ran in the back of Jeff. I got run in the back of. It was, I think, you know, there was 31 cars. I think it was somewhere about like 19th or something like that. And um, we were right in the middle of it. And I think it was quite ironic. People, you know, guys were walking out on the track. There was it just took them forever to clean up the mess. Uh, and I think only 15 restarted the race out of 31 or 32 cars. It was, it was horrible. I could only imagine what it was like for Ash's mum seeing a massive stack like that. Um, it was lucky no one got hurt. What else do you remember from that first development series season in 2008? Because obviously, as you would expect, a, a big learning curve for you. But there were stages during the season where you showed some good glimpses of pace. Yeah, um, certainly it was better at the tighter tracks. I, was, I, I definitely liked the, the, the tighter tracks. I love the street circuit tracks. Um, you know, it was just, just coming to grips. It was just the, the power variation from a, a Commodore Cup car to a, to a V8 supercar. It was, it was just it was exhilarating in terms of driver experience. But, you know, um, it was just the talent that you were racing around just made you become a better driver. Um, you know, engineering was different. It was, it was just a, a complete, it was like I reset and started again um, from my motorsport, but that really, I think, made me a better driver. Um, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't the smash up derbies that Commonwealth Cup was, but to tell you what, at times it wasn't far off it. Um, you know, they were racing for sheep stations back in the mid pack, let me tell you. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just remember, you know, um, just trying to trying to stay out of harm's way and just getting to learn the car and the power. Um, I, I, I probably recall you know, some really good results with when I went to Greg Murphy Racing. Um, better, you know, I was pretty excited when I had a, a top four finish. I think it was at Queensland Raceway, racing around the likes of Paul Morris and um, you know Steve Owen and, and all that. Um, and that was yeah, that was pretty exciting. That was a great result for me that um, that weekend. Yeah, so that was 2011. So, so just to recap, so 2008 was your first full year in Super mm-hmm. 2. The following two seasons, I think it was around the time that the global financial crisis had hit. So you made the decision for 2009 and 2010 to step back to Commodore Cup as your full-time focus and just do some selected Super 2 rounds here and there. But one of the things that we saw around then was that when you stepped back to Commodore Cup, your performances in Commodore Cup had taken another big step forward. You were, you'd gone from being a consistent top five runner to someone who was on the podium every weekend and more often than not fighting for race victories. Do you put that down to what you learned from your Super 2 experience? Yeah, learning heel the toe was a big, big, uh, big bonus. Uh, lucky, let me tell you. Um, yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, going back to Commonwealth Cup was um, 
was so much easier than, than what I had been doing. So the development series made me a, a much better driver and allowed me to understand data a lot better as well. Um, and then the new rivalry, I guess, in that in those next two years was uh, um, Adam Beachy and Brett Holdsworth. Um, and I had Jeff sort of engineering me and, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun and, and started enjoying winning races um, and, you know, consistently being on the podium. They were, they were, pretty, they were pretty cool days and a lot of fun those two years. Yeah, so you were runner-up in the championship both those years, second behind Brett Holdsworth in 2009, second behind Adam Beach in 2010. When we go back and we look at your results in both of those seasons, there's a fair argument that you were probably faster than both of those drivers in each of those seasons, but there were probably just a couple of little incidents that, that might have cost you some points throughout the season. I think I'd won more races in both those years years then and both those drives and won the championship but when we had a bad round we had a, a bad bad round enough that it cost us a lot of points I can't recall what happened but I, I remember saying to myself at the end of both those years I were two championships that, that got away from us so was, that was pretty disappointing I never got to win uh, a Commodore Cup championship given the speed that we had I think we still hold and and we broke the track record at Eastern Creek one of those years so that was pretty exciting um but yeah, I was definitely a better driver, a lot probably smarter driver, I think, lucky than what I had been earlier. Um, uh, and, you know, worked out, sort of keep it out of trouble and, you know, focus on, on what you can control, not what you can't control. Um, and yeah, it was, they were, they were good fun years. It's a shame we didn't win a championship in one of those years. Before we finish on the Commodore Cup chapter, I, I want to get your opinion on why the category ultimately collapsed because at its peak it was a really good category the racing was awesome good sized fields of cars very very talented drivers but uh, you actually raced in the very last round of commodore cup which was held at sandown in 2012 and by that stage the field had dwindled away and i think there were only eight cars on the grid that weekend um for what was such a good category why do you think that it ultimately collapsed yeah, look, it had lost it had lost a lot of the season campaigners. I think you know, uh, Accent Racing had moved on. Um, you know, Jeff Emery had moved on. You know, Marcus Akanovic had moved on. Um, you know, it was it unfortunately was going through a hiatus uh, where you know I think it was it was post the sort of global financial crisis and you know I think there was uh, once Dave Giddis had stepped away from it, it really needed someone to put their heart and soul into running that category um, and I just don't think it had the right people there to, to take it on and, and progress it um, further. I think, um, you know, it probably lost a lot of people when it went from VH to, to the VSs. You know, a lot of guys couldn't afford to, to upgrade their cars, uh, but it needed it. Um, it just wasn't enough business-minded people um, that were prepared to, you know, throw some money at it to keep it going and motorsport obviously lives off um, funding and where it gets its funding from. Um, and David done such a good job with it for a long, long time that, um, you know, it just it just started to, to fall away in numbers. So, um, you know, it was, it was a real shame, but you see that happen in a lot of categories. Um, they either turn the corner or they um, they fold. So it was a great breeding ground. And I think for fans, it was a, it was a great category to watch because, you know, there was some really close... Um, rivals, rivalries, um, but there was a bit of the old um, Biff and Bash that you know, spectators love to see.
So it's a shame that that's no longer around, but it is what it is. We move on. It is a shame, but I think that um, when you look at the current motorsport landscape here in Australia, the category that's filled the void that was left by Commonwealth Cup is TA2 and Trans Am. I can see a lot of similarities. The, the cars in, in TA2 are probably a bit more expensive than Commonwealth Cup cars, but at the same time, I think they're also probably a bit cheaper to maintain because they've got a lot more control components. And that seems to be becoming a very popular and quite affordable category for people to get involved in racing. Big, loud, fast, rear-wheel drive V8 cars that slide around a lot. Yeah, I, I watched it for the first time the other day. Yeah, they look pretty cool. So, um, you know, the demographic um, that follows motorsport loves that sort of stuff. So, you know, I think um, it's, a, it's a perfect um, category. Um, and I, and I, I could see that whole ARG series you know, really taking off. I think they're doing a great job with it. And, um, you know, that TA2 series is certainly in the, in the right, in the right uh, spot to be racing in. So turning back to your career, so we get to 2011, and at this stage, Tag Motorsport effectively merges with Greg Murphy Racing, which Greg Murphy Racing had formed out of what was the old Tasman Motorsport operation in the main game. Uh, so you had Kevin Murphy involved... Uh, yourself and, and Jeff as the drivers and uh, a couple of others like Matt Hanson who raced for the team as well. Uh, how was it having that tie-up with um, such an established and experienced operation? Yeah, that was, they, were, they were a fabulous team. Um, you know, um, Kevin Murphy's a, a hell of a nice guy, um, real old-fashioned motorsporter, um, cares about his drivers. Um, and that was, you know, that was, that was great. Um, had some you know, really fun times, some good results. Um, I thought my driving went to another level again when I when I got to them. Um, they uh, they ran a really professional outfit. Um, again, you know, likes of uh, Ches Mostert, Scotty McLaughlin, seeing them come through. Um, you know, it was it was a bloody hard category. So to get a result was was uh, was pretty tough, but it just made you a better driver, made you more. Um, you know, aware, um, and you know, it's uh, it, it's it's a great feeder category for the young kids to come through on, and for the old guys to um, to think that they're still young by racing um, an unbelievable car. So, 2011 would actually turn out to be your last year, though, competing in the Super Two Series, because in 2012 you decided to change direction and move into the Porsche Carrera Cup. Why the change of heart? Was it a case of it just becoming a bit too difficult to be competitive week in and week out against the young guns in Super 2? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, it was, it was really a forum for the young guys to, to come through and cut their teeth to get in the main game. Um, I achieved what I wanted to achieve in terms of improving my driving. But, you know, finishing between 10 and 15 wasn't floating my boat. Um, you know, you had to be real and, and understand you're not going to get any better than that, even though, you know, if things worked out your way, um, certainly with the top 10. You know, I remember starting on pole one, one time at Sandown. You know, um, it was it was exciting, but I wanted to I wanted to win races. Um, I enjoyed winning races when I went back to Commodore Cup in um, 10 and 11, was it, or 9 and 10? 9 Eight, and 10, nine. Yeah. 9 and 10. Um, and I started watching a fair bit of... Um, uh, career Cup and you know there was an opportunity 
there with the pro and the am um, segregation to, to win races. Um, so, you know, it was a one-make series, so there was no disparity with, with power or, um, or models or whatever. Um, so I thought, you know, this, this could be pretty good. And, and it was a professional category, something I could take my clients to, um, you know, family and friends. So I hooked up with Andy McElroy, had a chat, and um, thought we'd make the move over to Brewer uh, Cup. Let's talk a bit more about the whole pro and am thing, because I think here in Australia especially, the am or the, the gentleman drivers often don't get the recognition that they deserve. And when people talk about am or gentleman drivers, it almost comes across as a derogatory term, which is really not fair in my view, because people like yourself are a big part of what sustains the motorsport industry. Um, you know, the fact that you're going out and spending money on your recreation, it creates jobs for mechanics and engineers and media managers like myself. Um, you know, it's an expensive hobby and the reality is that unless you're one of the very lucky few who get to race professionally, um, you know, like on a supercars level, you have to be successful off the track with what you do and make enough money so that you can enjoy yourself on the track. So I think it's worth Batesy touching on your off-track exploits with business, um, particularly with alternative freight services. So it's a company that you started back in 1995. It's become very, very successful and well-regarded freight consulting and logistics management enterprise. Um, more recently, you've you've had the, uh, the Move It Net company come under your umbrella, which I know is... Um, freight project management software as well. So just tell us a bit about your business endeavours and how that all started and how it's grown to the level that it's at now. Yeah, look, uh, it's quite a, a, that's a couple of hours conversation. <laughs> this whole separate you know, podcast, yeah. Yeah, I started that from, uh, from scratch, um, harebrained idea as a 19 year old um, and I thought about it for a few years and uh, thought I'd, you know, had nothing to lose, had no money to my name to lose anyway. So um, came up with this harebrained idea to, yeah, consult and, and manage my clients' transport requirements. Um, and, you know, it took a while to, to, uh, for me to finally make the decision, but made the decision and um, I guess have a look back. Um, since we specialise in, um, you know, freight management, uh, we do third-party warehousing logistics, we've got IT uh, logistics software now. Uh, employ about 130 staff um, with uh, with about 150 million dollar turnover. So we're um, you know 20 almost 26 years uh, in a few days. Um, 26 years old and look that's that's been great. Um, in, I probably wouldn't have been able to get into motorsport otherwise. You know there's a lot of talented drivers out there. Lucky that. You know, don't get to, sh to to show their true true worth because they don't have money support behind them. So, us established guys that you know have the ability um, to to fund it yourself. Um, you know, it's 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 a great uh, form in which you can do that. But you know, um, you know, my business has, has definitely been able to to fund my motorsport, but it's also great for my business because it's a great talking point with clients and suppliers. Um, you know, the ride days and, and all that sort of stuff that you can give back to your, to your buggy clients and staff and, and friends is, is pretty cool. So we try and do as many ride days as we can. Um, an AFS one for our AFS clients and then a different ride day for, um, you know, sponsors and, and supporters of, of, our, of our team. So, 
you know, AFS has been a great contributor movement net. You know, both those businesses that I've got um, have, have enabled me to, to be able to go out and have some fun. Has there been anything that you've gained skills-wise from your motorsport involvement that has helped you out on the business side of things? Yeah, to pick yourself up off the canvas uh, from a low and uh, kick yourself up the arse and get back into it. Um, I said this the other day, motorsport's highs are the greatest highs money can't buy. And motorsport's lows, the more often than the highs, um, are devastating and there's a shocking, you know, yeah, you could have friends and family watching you or coming out to watch a, an event. And if you have a shocker or you're out in the first lap or something like that, it's it's deflating like nothing ever could deflate you. Um, but the highs is what keeps you going. It's like a game of golf. Um, you know, you have a great game of golf one day and it sucks you back into to going again and, uh, you know, you're 175 over par the next week because you've had a shocker. So... You know, um, the highs are, are just exhilarating. You know, I, I, I cherish the highs and appreciate them a lot more these days because they're, um, you know, as you get further into your career, um, you know, um, you don't know what's around the corner. And I'm not sure when I'll stop racing, but I'm probably getting nearer to that than I am um, continuing on. But, you know, there's no sign I'll stop just yet. I'm loving my motorsport um, more than I've ever done before. But... You know, um, it's had its advantages and disadvantages. Like, you know, it's funded my motorsport, but at the same time, it also um, doesn't leave you alone. So, you know, I've been known to be on the phone, you know, on dummy grid, sort of trying to find freight or dealing with staff or clients. And it's pretty hard, it's pretty hard mixing the two. Um, I think I'm a lot better these days. I've got management team that run the business for me and I'm involved a lot less than what I used to be. But... You know, it's it's hard running a business um, from at a racetrack, but you see a lot of the the AMs like myself um, always on the phone um, because they're doing deals or they're solving issues at work, and that's just what you got to do. Comes with the territory. If you don't have a job, you're not on the phone, but you're generally relying on someone to fund it for you, or you're not racing anymore. So there's there's and against, but I'd rather I'd rather I'm happy the way I've got it. You know, I manage it a lot better than what I used to nowadays. So 2012 Carrera Cup, obviously a big change from the supercar, moving, well, first and foremost into a left-hand drive race car, but completely different power and weight distribution. What did you find the most challenging thing to adapt to with the Carrera Cup car? You know, the, the, left-hand, the left-hand drive was definitely definitely something that um, was, it took a bit of getting used to. Um, not so much on the track, but when you walked out of the transporter, and um, you'd walk to the wrong side of the car. Um, that was probably the, that was probably the biggest thing. Uh, getting the wrong side of the car was something quite frequently that was happening, and I got stirred up a lot about. So, I guess uh, uh, going, you know going to tracks that you're normally you know rubbing up against the the wall on your driver's side, having to judge that a little bit differently. You know it was it was it was a little bit weird, but you just adapt. And I think after you know a round or two, it was sort of like it's fine. You're just going around the racetrack, sitting on a different side of the car, but um, you, you just adapted. And you know, I, I actually think I've taken the left-hand left-hand drive um, pretty well. I, you just you just don't even notice it now. It's just second nature. So, first couple of seasons in Carrera Cup, 2012 and 2013, you were learning the car, coming to grips with it, and starting to get some good results. 
finishing on the podium in the Pro-Am class or the Tag Heuer Challenge, as it was called. Uh, 2014, though, was where you really started showing winning form on a consistent basis. You started off with a clean sweep of race victories at Adelaide. You were leading the championship. Uh, unfortunately, I seem to remember at Bathurst that year an incident where on the first lap of the first race of the weekend, you got punted into the wall between Griffin's Bend and the cutting. And uh, I don't know who swore louder that day, you in the car or me standing on the balcony of the media centre watching the race on the big screen that was opposite on, on Pitt Strait. I remember my good mate Shane Jones was in the media centre and he said that my reaction was, was something to behold. But um, 2014, when you think about that season, was it a season where, again, good pace, but just some frustrating incidents that cost you the championship? Yeah, it was another, another uh, season I recall I won the most races but didn't win the championship. So that's happened to me a few times. Uh, yeah, that was, that was an extremely frustrating incident. You know, you, you just need a lot of luck to win championships. And, uh, you know, sometimes things, uh, things are out of your control. You can't uh, help the brain fade of, of others. You have them yourself at times. So that's motorsport. Um, I think I've, I've, I've been hardened so much with motorsport now that uh, I'm able to brush things off a lot better than what I used to be able to. But, yeah, that was a pretty disappointing incident. Yeah, I, was, I was obviously pretty frustrated post that, uh, that race because that was uh, uncalled for what, what had happened and uh, you know, it cost us a championship. 2015, similar story. You were fast again, but some more incidents, including a big one at Sydney Motorsport Park that put you out of the weekend altogether. But then we get to 2016, and finally, after so many years of trying, you finally break through to win the national title. You didn't actually win as many races in 2016 compared to the previous couple of seasons, but you had fewer bad results. You were more consistent and that was how you were able to get the job done. Going into that season, was that always the way that you had decided that you were going to approach it? Yeah, isn't it funny? So I lost uh, the championship again in 15. I think we ran second again, didn't we? Or third or something like that. Um, won the most races in you know 14 and 15, but didn't win the championship. So I thought I'd try something different and be more consistent, not worry about race wins. Um, we we didn't we didn't win the most races that year, but we won the championship. So um, that's telling you something, isn't it? You don't need to win the most races in the year, but you just need to be consistent. Um, and that was yeah, unbelievably satisfying to have finally won the championship. I remember going into the Gold Coast last round, and it was qualifying, and I was just thinking, just take it easy, don't do anything silly. Going over the, the beach beach um, chicanes and you know that's they're not chicanes that you you can take too easily you know you need to get some lift for the next you know get over the back of the curb and and because I was trying to protect the championship I'll never forget in qualifying because I wasn't as committed as what I normally am through there because I want to just bring it back a, a step just finish the weekend that's all we had to do and I've, and I've, I've hit the back of the the last curb because I didn't take it aggressively enough and uh, just lost control of the car and spun backwards. And I'm, I, I know those walls you don't want to hit, you, you come off second best. And 
I, I stopped like about an inch from the wall. So it was just meant to be that year because um, that, <laughs> that, uh, that was trying to protect the championship too much. So, yeah, I did, I did have a mindset like in that year to, to, to be consistent. Um, and it wasn't about winning the most amount of races. And crazily enough, we didn't win the race, the amount of races that won the championship. So it was a great year. On the Sunday night that weekend, we all went to the Porsche presentation dinner together and then um, we all partied along into the night and the early hours of the next morning, which we were still allowed to do back then in pre-COVID times. Just how much did it mean to you, though, um, from an emotional perspective, to finally get the job done, to finally win a national title? Yeah, look, you know, um, I had some good mates, Dan Gordon, Dave Reynolds around me that, that night and... You know, yourself being with me all my uh, sporting career, uh, racing career, and uh, my, my nephew Liam. Yeah, we, we, um, it was just extremely gratifying. And um, I probably shouldn't have started the car up in the hotel lobby because um, <laughs> that raised a few heads. Uh, but anyway, um, we, uh, yeah, we, we definitely celebrated hard. I think the party fi- uh, finished uh, at my place Tuesday afternoon. So, yeah. <laughs> We, we, we definitely know how to celebrate, that's for sure. Actually, I remember the following year at the Porsche dinner, Greg Rust, who was the MC, he said, um, so a bit of housekeeping, ladies and gentlemen, there's to be no starting of race cars in the hotel lobby. Thank you. <laughs> really? Okay. I wonder who was aiming that at. <laughs> uh, so that was 2016, and that would prove to be your last season in Carrera Cup for the time being, at least, because in 2017... You decided to make the progression into GT racing. Now, you'd already had a taste of a bit of GT stuff uh, in an Audi at Townsville in 2016, but in 2017, you stepped into GT competition full-time. You ran at the Bathurst 12-hour with the Nadecki Stone Motorsport team in an Aston Martin, and then uh, you moved across to Eggleston Motorsport in a Mercedes for the Australian GT Championship. Why the decision at that point to move out of Carrera Cup and into Australian GT? Oh, look, I've been in Carrera Cup for a few years, won the championship. I uh, wanted to set out and try and win the championship in a different category and try something different. I'd been in Carrera Cup by then for, I don't know, what, four or five years. Um, and I just wanted, wanted to do something different. Um, the you know the the little stint I had in the Audi um, replacing Jeff when he got injured was was a lot of fun, um, you know that Aston Martin 12 hour was heaps heaps of heaps of fun, um, and the, the the GT cars are just amazing cars to drive. So you know, I just thought it was time for a change, um, and uh, and we sort of really haven't looked back since. And then in 2018, you actually purchased your own Audi R race to run in the Australian GT Championship, and it would be another year where you were in contention for the championship, including getting a big win in the 501 Enduro at Phillip Island with Dan Gaunt. But a bit of the theme here, Jeff Emery, the rivalry and the friendship that you have had, it ended up being uh, you and him battling for the title heading into the last round in New Zealand, and he pretty much pipped you at the post. Yeah. <laughs> My old nemesis. Um, yeah, look... Uh... That was, a, that was a great round. Um, it was an enduro. Any, any one of four drivers um, could have won it that, that weekend. Um, we felt really confident the car was great. Unfortunately, we got um, absolutely poleaxed 
in the first sort of, there was, I think there was a, a sprint race before the Enduro on the Sunday um, that I think was going to determine qualifying or something. And uh, I got taken out and did a fair, got, got a fair bit of damage to our car. We thought we'd fix the car um, overnight and um, we went out and we had to race the four hours with a, um, with a broken damper um, that it got us through the race, but the, 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 the car was like a cork in the ocean every time he went, went around a turn. And, um, you know, Dan had done a great job to bring it home. And, you know, yeah, it was, uh, it was nose to tail four cars. And any one of those four cars was was vying for the for the championship in both the enduro and the outright championship, and we yeah uh, we got picked at the post um, by um, by you know a bees a bees you know what so it was it was it was exciting it was a great racing um, you always want to win the championship but you don't mind losing to, to to good guys and good drivers and you know that year I think Twiggy won the um, endurance championship and Jeff won the outright championship so two of my closest mates. Um, you know, you, it's sort of bittersweet. You're happy for them, but you, you're pissed off you didn't win it yourself. So that's okay. It's um, you know, it makes it makes you more determined for, for the next year. And the next year was 2019, where you decided to venture a bit further afield and uh, check out some of the international tracks as part of the Audi R8 LMS Cup, which ran within the Asia Pacific region. So it started off in Australia at the Clipsal 500, but then. You got to go racing at a variety of international circuits in China and uh, Malaysia and Japan. How was your experience in the R8 LMS Cup and how much did you enjoy checking out some of those international venues? I ate lots of sushi and uh, lots of uh, beef and black bean sauce. Mate, it was incredible. Incredible. Like We won the first round, obviously, at Clipsal and then went to Zuhai, then went to... Um, we raced at Shanghai, we raced at uh, Suzuka, we raced at Sepang. Incredible experience, same, same powered cars, um, great bunch of guys. The Asians were absolutely you know, awesome to race against and race with. They take their motorsport pretty seriously as well, but everyone was, was AM drivers in same top cars. And um, it was a challenge because they had to learn, learn the new tracks and um, you know, they, they were you know, um, GP tracks. Um, I definitely would have been better the second year around, having known the tracks. Um, so I was looking forward to do a, doing a second year, but obviously, um, unfortunately, LMS was disbanded um, and COVID hit anyway, so that wouldn't have been an option. But that was that was an unbelievable experience to be racing at some of the best tracks in the world um, against you know pretty pretty handy drivers. Those those Asian guys go pretty good, so you know loved it and made some good friendships over there. So a few other things to cover off as far as your career goes. One in particular that I want to highlight is Adelaide. Now, it was announced late last year that uh, the Adelaide 500 is no longer going to, to go ahead, which has been a very sad piece of news for a lot of motorsport fans to have to digest. But uh, what that means, Tony, is that uh, you will eternally hold the record as the most successful driver at the Adelaide Street Circuit. You've won more races than any other driver with 13 race victories at the Adelaide Circuit. Now, I have actually had some arguments with Aaron Noonan about this because he doesn't reckon that class wins should be counted. But in my view, yeah, if you win your class, that counts as a race win for me. So... 
Um, clean sweeps in three years in a row in Carrera Cup, a round win in the Australian GT Championship, and a couple of race wins in the Audi R8 LMS Cup as well. Why was it that you always seemed to go so well at Adelaide? Uh, look, I, I love those commitment tracks. I, I love those tracks that, you know, um, you're hard up against the wall. They're dangerous. You've got to be switched on. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're hard under brakes. Um, they're free-flowing. You know, I just don't know. Just, you know, Townsville, um, you know, uh, Clipsville, Gold Coast, I, I just thrive on them and, and, and relish them. Adelaide, yeah, just a, it's one of the best events of the year. The, the whole town comes together. It's, it's a massive build-up. It's a four-day event. Um, big crowds, weather's generally hot and but I just seem to be my element there. Um, I've got no doubt Adelaide will reappear again one day. It's too, it's too good an event and too good a track for them to take it off the calendar. And I think if there's a switching government, then I, I can see that event being reinstated. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, just, just love the circuit. Um, you know, it's just like, like anyone, you have your strengths and weaknesses of different tracks and different circuits. And, um, you know, I just, I just used to count down the days to, to Adelaide Grand Prix was on. I wish it was, uh, sorry, Adelaide Clipsal. I wish um, they had every round at, um, at Adelaide. Be, um, great, it would be a great championship for, uh, for that to happen. <laughs> uh, another event that I want to talk about is the Bathurst 12-hour. Um, and unfortunately, this event's not been particularly kind to you because the stats show that you've had three starts but if we dig a bit deeper, we find that the sum total of your Bathurst 12-hour race experience is one stint in the 2017 race because the other two years, 2015 and 2020, the car has either been crashed or it's broken down before you've had the opportunity to drive it. Is the Bathurst 12-hour an event where you feel like you've got some unfinished business? Definitely. 100% and I'll keep going and having a crack at it till I can at least do a stint or two um, or two stints it will break my record. Yeah, it's, it's just been unfortunate. You know, the, the year I did it with uh, um, in, in, in a Porsche uh, with Grant Denyer and, and Co, you know, we were standing there on the line, suited up, ready to go in and uh, um, the owner of the vehicle um, put it in the wall. But, you know, these things happen. Um, same thing happened with... Uh, the Mediki car with Ash Walsh, um, you know, the owner of the car put it in the wall, but that, you know, that wasn't uh, his fault. We had a carbon monoxide issue and lucky did put us all in hospital that, 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 that weekend. Um, and then last year, decided to run my own car and uh, my own team. And uh, unfortunately, all, uh, yeah, the engine, brand, brand spanking new engine blew up not far off I was, uh, when I was suiting up to get ready to, to jump in. So, uh, yeah, it's been it's been one of those bogey rounds or events for me, but uh, we'll we'll get we'll get the better of it before I uh, finish up. I can assure you. Looking ahead, the event ever starts up again. I'm sure it will. I'm sure we'll get back to some sense of normality and be able to have a 12 hour again. But looking ahead now to the 2021 season, and you've announced that you are going to run in what's now known as the GT World Challenge Australia, which effectively replaces the Australian GT Championship in the Bostic-sponsored Audi uh, with a very gun-driver-engineer combination on board in Chas Mostert as co-driver and Adam DeBore as race engineer. Do you see 2021 as being your best chance of winning a national title since 2016? 
Yeah, hundred um, percent. But you know, championships aren't handed to you, lucky. No matter what the combination, I'm hearing of some pretty good combinations starting to get developed out there. So um, it'll be game on. That's for sure. You know, I think there's going to be um, co-drivers like Ben Gisberg and uh, Garth Tander that, that are going to be out there pairing up with um, with some pretty handy AMs. Um, there's a there's a guy, uh, an AM from um, the Prince of he's a Prince of whatever. He's coming over to race uh, with Triple Eight, so um, it's going to be an exciting year. I think it was standing like one stage, like who's going to run. But the closer we get, the more um, I'm hearing that possible combinations. Um, so it's going to be pretty cool um, seeing a, a, a qualifying session with Tanda Van Gisberg and Mostert, you know, Luke Yulden out there. Um, it's going to be pretty pretty exciting. But it's great; it puts pressure on the AM driver to perform because the, the pros will do their, their job. So. You know, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Got a test day coming up this Thursday in preparation for, for the, the first round. And I think from what I'm hearing, it's going to be four sprint races and two enduros, a three-hour enduro and a four-hour enduro. So, um, yeah, looking, looking forward to the year. Should be, should be really good. Well, I think the other thing as well about having some of those big names involved is that it will attract a lot of fan attention to the championship. And that has to be a good thing. I know that you've worked very hard in the background to get Bostic on board as a major sponsor for this year. So any attention that's focused on the category is going to be good for them as well. Yeah, Bostic have been awesome. So, uh, you know, very grateful for their involvement. They're very excited to get into motorsport and uh, do lots of corporate hospitality for their, for their customers and suppliers and staff. So, you know, I want to do their brand proud and, um, you know, I've given ourselves every chance with the, with an engineer like Adam, who we've had success with, um, who I rate very highly, <clears throat> and I think uh, young Chaz goes all right. So you now we should uh, we should be a really good combination. So that pretty much covers your motorsport journey and, and gets us to where you are now. So just a few questions in closing: What else would you like to achieve in your motorsport career, and how much longer do you think you'll continue? How much more do I, you know, what do I want to achieve? How much more do I want to achieve? Look, championships are what you, you know, race wins is what you, you go for and then championships take care of themselves. I'm a big believer of that. So, you know, I, I just want to have a consistent season whereby, you know, um, we're, having, we're having, you know, really good results. Um, but I'm in it to have fun. You know, my family, my kids are getting older so they can come out and, and watch and, and my partner Holly, you know, she hasn't been around long enough to, to see much of me uh, in, in a motorsport vehicle, given we didn't race barely last year. So, you know, I just, just go out and do it for fun. The results will take care of themselves. And, you know, um, if you're doing it with mates and you're doing it with uh, good people, then, you know, it's uh, as, um, as Dan Gaunt would always say, you know, for, for an AM, it's our, it's our golf. You know, it's our game of golf. And, and that's why I'm treating it these days. It's my game of golf. I go out there to relax and, and enjoy it. Um, and if results come our way, they come our way. You're How long will I keep doing it for? Yeah. You know, as long as my body allows me to and my brain allows me to. Um, you know, the, the, the brain uh, is, is way in advance of what the body is these days. Um, if there's an injury to be had, I seem to find it. Um, but, you know, I, I'd, yeah, I've, still, I've still got a bit left in me. I'm no, uh, no signs of of uh, retiring just yet so you'll have a client around for a, a few more years yet lucky <laughs> good to know 15 years uh you've been one of my clients do your well, you were uh, you were seven years old then 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> your achievements in motorsport make you wish that you had perhaps started a bit earlier and maybe tried to pursue the professional route? Yeah, 100%. You know, I started when I was 34, wasn't I? 34, 35 or something. So, yeah, absolutely. But I, I wouldn't swap anything for the world. It's been, it's been great. Made lots and lots and lots of friends out of it. Spent lots and lots and lots of money. Um, but had lots and lots and lots of smiles and tears. But, you know, the, the, the friendships out of it, you know, um, uh, have just been amazing. And there's some, you know, there's some really, really good guys in motorsport. Um, and, you know, do those, those, you know, all those volunteers, you know, they're, they're absolute champions. You know, what they do to enable us to go racing is, uh, is just something else. And you know, I, I love when you're coming back after a race and um, I just make sure that I'm waving to, to all those, all those marshals that are hanging over the fence waving at you. You know, I, I don't like when I, when I see drivers not waving back to them because, you know, you've got to acknowledge those, uh, those guys that they, they allow us to go motorsport racing and, you know, to them, it's um, you know, it's a massive thank you to all those guys because they're uh, they give up their time and their weekends um, as much as you know our crew our crew does as well. And you know, there's, there's so much that goes into a motorsport event. It's it's not funny. So I'll be around for a few years yet, mate. Hear here as far as your comments about officials go, they definitely don't always get the appreciation that they deserve. So. On the podcast, we always finish up here on Checkered Flag Chat with a segment called Checkered Flag Choices. And it's a bit like speed dating. So basically, I ask you five questions uh, and, and you answer them. So question number one, what is your favourite holiday destination? Maldives. Yeah, how come? Time away from the kids, tranquility. Uh, it's just a great place to relax. I mean, Italy, Italy is an amazing place, but uh, for a romantic getaway, Maldives uh, beats everything else hands down. Question number two, who are three people you would invite to dinner? Three people. Charlie Sheen, <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street. Jordan Belfort, yep. And um, I better not say female in case Holly's listening. Uh, Michael Jordan. Fair enough. Question number three. This will be an interesting one, actually, because I know that you've owned some pretty cool road cars, Ferraris and Aston Martins and the like, but what's your dream car? Probably uh, a convertible. I'm just trying to think of the model now, but it's a, it's a convertible Ferrari. I've been fortunate enough to have some, some nice cars um, in my garage. But, yeah, I, I mean, I'd still have a Ferrari if it didn't get me in so much trouble. <laughs> um, but, you know, one day when I know I can limit myself to street um, speed limits, then yeah, I'd love to jump back into a Ferrari again. What are, you've got an Aston Martin at the moment, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, DB11, that's a nice yeah. car. Uh, question number four, what would be your ideal date uh, for you and Holly? Uh, ideal date for me and Holly? Yeah, probably um, eating dinner somewhere in, uh, in Venice in Italy. Uh, and the last question, question number five, who is the racing driver that you respect the most? It could be anywhere in the world, yeah? Yep. Um, if I don't say Dave Reynolds, I'm in trouble. <laughs> if I don't say Dan Gaunt, I'm in trouble. But in all honesty... Um, if you don't say Chaz Mostert, you might be in a bit of trouble now as well. I might be in Chaz as well now, yeah. Respect the most. Um, uh, look, I, I, think, I think, you know... Um, 
you know, some of those co-drivers, some of those drivers in the Formula One teams that, um, you know, have, have got a have got to take a hit for, for the team. You know, Mark Webber did it for Vettel, you know, at times, you know, Bottas for Hamilton. You know, they, those guys that they're the, they're the second driver in the team and sometimes they're ordered to, to uh, you know, what, what happened to Webber a few times was 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 bullshit. Um, so, you know, I respect drivers like that that, you know, have to cop it on the chin and front up to the media and, you know, put on a brave face. But, you know, look... I, th I think you have a respect for any of that, any any driver that jumps in a race car because, you know, as as we've seen, um, you know, you you could be here tomorrow and, and you know we we've, we've been close enough, um, unfortunately, to to knowing that motorsports come a long way. It's a lot safer these days, but you know, you look at that um, that incident in Formula One um, last year where it was Grosjean, wasn't it? Um, how he survived that. Um, is is a testament to how safe those cars are nowadays. But you know, I, I look, you've got to have respect for all those drivers that uh, that, that get out in the in the, those um, in the into those categories in particular. That uh, you could just you could be here today and gone tomorrow. So I think I've got respect for all race car drivers. Lucky. Good stuff, Batesy. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and uh, really cool to dive deeper into your motorsport career and also some of what you've achieved off the track as well. Thanks, mate. I, I did that under sufferance. I've cancelled you a few times, but I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. It was, uh, it was good to relive that. I, uh, I haven't ever done that before. So, um, you know, at my, uh, at my uh, farewell motorsport ceremony dinner, um, in years to come, I'll make sure you're the MC, mate, because you know more about my motorsport than I know about myself. So you've been around a long time now, and uh, you know, thank you for all your support as well, mate. You, you're, uh, you know, you've, you've been great for, for my exposure, and I appreciate it. Tony's business exploits mean he has a hectic schedule, so we thoroughly appreciate him taking the time to appear on the podcast. Over the almost two decades he's been involved in motorsport. Tony and others like him have contributed an enormous amount to the industry and for that they certainly deserve just as much recognition as the high profile professional drivers. And Tony just happens to be pretty darn good behind the wheel as well. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Checkered Flag Chat. Make sure you subscribe and if you feel like it, drop us a review. I'm Lockie Mansell. Thanks for listening.